listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. So how's your hunting season been going this, this fall? I'm actually uh, disappointed myself. I haven't gone out for a big game at all. I've uh, primarily been focused on waterfowl uh, for the past uh, four or five weeks. And I also did my first Sandhill crane hunt, uh, which was actually a ton of fun. So highly recommend folks do that. That's nothing cool. to feel bad about or apologize. I'm like, that's all I've been doing for the last few weeks is waterfowl hunting. Um, that's so Sandhill cranes, you got in on that. Tell us about that. What's that yeah. like? Uh, honestly, it's, uh, if you've been out goose hunting, it's pretty similar. Uh, so they actually decoy quite nicely, uh, but they're oh. a super spooky bird. Um, I would say they're actually a heck of a lot spookier than uh, a duck or a goose, because uh, if they do see anything uh, that's out of the ordinary, uh, they're gone. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, one thing that really struck me is uh, they do tend to uh, circle quite high, and as they're circling, they'll slowly come down. Uh, I haven't seen that behavior in uh, snow goose or uh, Canada's uh, before. Like usually those guys are pretty low. Uh, the sand hills will start slowly circling and they'll slowly kind of wind their way down and they're always scoping you out every uh, foot of the way. It's uh, it's phenomenal. So, wow. wow. Do you do you do calls? Uh, the guide I was with, uh, I ended up, uh, this is my first season and uh, I learned my lesson uh, from uh, previous hunts. Uh, when I was looking for new critters, uh, just go out with a guide for the first time, learn all the ins and outs, and then uh, try to do a DIY after that. So in this case, the uh, uh, guide uh, was pretty uh, uh, liberal with the calls. Uh, so I got to figure those out because I'm still working on my uh, duck calls. As well. <laughs> wow. Um, so did you get some? Uh, yeah, I came home with uh, four birds um, and uh, I'm not sure how familiar are with what's happening out here, but there's uh, some pretty bad droughts. And uh, from a waterfowl perspective, things have dried up like dramatically. So there's not a lot of the potholes anymore. Um, and it's actually impacted the migrations uh, with the sand hills as well. So typically there's a ton of birds that come down. Uh, they usually start uh, migrating come uh, mid-August. And this year, apparently the migration has been delayed like weeks. Uh, so their behavior this year is just uh, really out of the ordinary. So. Uh, from what I've uh, been able to sniff around uh, with a number of folks, uh, they're not sure if it's due to the uh, drought that's happening or the uh, incredible amount of uh, forest fire smoke we've been getting, but the birds are just way off uh, this year. Huh. Yeah. Now, what are you, so for ducks and geese, what are your thoughts on like, what are you seeing for the flock starting to move down from the far north? Because uh, here in southern British Columbia, I don't think we're seeing any of that that stuff starting to show up. Like, because I don't think there's bad weather in the north yet. What what what's happening? Uh, we literally just got our first uh, real hard cold snap uh, this week. Um, so, interestingly enough, uh, there's been birds, but not in the numbers that we're used to. But I've also seen snow geese uh, a lot further west than uh, they typically show up. Uh, so I live uh, just north of Air or uh, north of Calgary. Uh, and typically you got to drive about uh, 40 minutes, 50 minutes to actually get some really good numbers for snow geese. And uh, just actually last week on my uh, way back from a morning hunt, uh, there's fields and fields of snow geese and that very rarely happens. And this is like literally on the doorstep to Calgary. So patterns are, are changing again. Um, I'm by no means an expert. And I don't claim to be, but 
the short period of time I've been uh, looking for waterfowl, so say the past three years, uh, this year seems to be a lot different. Oh, wow. Um, Curtis and I are headed up uh, Edmonton there to uh, do the mallard, hit the big mallard migrations uh, on the last week of October. So, Oh, well, you might be okay because uh, they're typically triggered by uh, temperature, if, uh, what I recall. Uh, and uh, that was actually the one thing that struck me too about the uh, Sandell crane hunt is uh, typically uh, you'd see bur uh, ducks everywhere. We didn't see a single duck, uh, which is highly unusual, like not a single one. Wow. Um, so yeah, again, I'm sure patterns have changed. I'm sure people who are much smarter than me can talk about it. But uh, from what I remember, uh, Ducks Unlimited saying, I believe it was last week or two weeks ago, the numbers are, are really, really down in terms of uh, hatches. Huh. Yeah, well, hopefully it kind of works out for everybody this this fall. And because, man, you can put a lot of meat in your freezer from waterfowl. I think everybody always thinks it's like you got to focus on, like, the big game animals if you want to fill your freezer. And then you can just kind of, like like play around like with waterfowl hunting but it's like man you get you get focused on waterfowl hunting and it's like especially canada geese like it's like it it adds up yeah and honestly it's just finding uh new recipes and just trying that stuff out but i just find it really neatly uh fills those gaps uh, when you don't want necessarily want to chase a uh, big game when it's uh, uh when it's too hot or windy or whatever i'd rather just go do the waterfowl and by no means is it easier but it's just a it's a different way to start mixing up your uh your menu options no man it's easier because <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah, uh, like we hunt in the Rocky mountains, like for elk and stuff in the archery season. And then it's like, and you're like, holy shit, man. Like this is, what am, what are we doing? And, uh, we're like, what the hell do we do if we get an elk way back here or whatever? And, and it's kind of like the duck season comes along and it's like, okay, we're going to put the beach, the boat here. And we're going to go like right over there, set up the blind. It's flat between the boat and there. And, uh, we're going to set up and get pour some coffee and we're going to talk loudly <laughs> until the ducks show up. And it's like, it's, uh, I've never shot a duck or a goose where I've got, Oh my God, what did I do? How are we going to get this thing out of here? Yeah. It's usually the uh, two dozen decoys I'm hauling out and a couple of dead geese and obviously your firearms and your everything else. And it's like, and of yeah. course where I hunt, uh, there's a couple of ducks and limited uh, properties that you need to hike into, uh, which I thoroughly enjoy because it really does uh, uh, make the barrier to entry quite uh, more difficult for certain people. <laughs> so, <laughs> it depends right. what you uh, want to get out of it for sure. <laughs> right. So in other words, you don't have the old geezers back in there booming no. away at the ducks. <laughs> no, we got the young guys that are uh, too busy sky busting uh, geese that are apparently 300 yards away. So oh, uh, geez, that's always... Geez good for the blood pressure <laughs> so so back to the sandhill cranes like they're like five feet tall like they're they're huge birds now is there a lot on them like compared to a canada goose uh i would say they're probably about half uh, canada goose uh no but i think the biggest misnomer that people or biggest mistake people do um they actually overlook the legs uh so they'll simply breast out the sandhills and that's all they take um, the, the legs themselves are actually quite comparable to a Canada goose uh, from the ones I shot anyways, the specimens I got, uh, there's a ton of meat on it. And, um, I remember even talking to a couple of folks uh, who were out, uh, 
in our group and that's all oh, that's all you can eat is the breast it's like oh no there's actually a whole bunch of other stuff you can do no kidding uh, but again it's just learn, knowing uh, what to do it but yeah canada is by far and away our uh, pigs so. <laughs> and they're great <laughs> no cool yeah like even with the canada geese like i take the legs the wings out to the to the like the very end uh and the neck and all of that goes to the slow cooker to make uh whatever, pull goose for tacos. Oh, good for you. And awesome. off one Canada goose, two legs, two wings in the neck is like taco meat for like six people, like a big taco feed. And I can't believe that people don't take that. Like it, that blows me away. And then I keep the brisket. Oh, good. Um, for um, making goose stock. And it's usually I have more goose stock than I have any other type of stock as well. And, uh, yeah, I think, I think the critters must be pissed at me when I take my stuff out because it's like, there's like wings with nothing inside them and just a bunch of feathers in the head. <laughs> wow. Good for you. So, and I also so, take a bunch of the feathers as well. So yeah, <laughs> I try to use as much as possible. Oh, cool. Cool. Well, that's super exciting. I hope to get, we can get over there one day to do the Sandhill Crane thing because uh, when that announcement came out, like, about well, this is the second season in Alberta for it now, and it's like, that was just so exciting to see something new being added to hunting mm -hmm. as opposed to constantly, like, taking away in shorter seasons and, you know, and this and that. You're, you're probably fully aware of that. So, um, well, right on. Hopefully you get out to uh, maybe some late-season deer hunting. It's going to be getting... You know, good for the whitetails here pretty quick. A little bit of snow. Yeah, I'll be uh, ramping that up uh, next week, theoretically. Right. So. Good, good for you. Good for you. Uh, right on. Hey, everybody, it's Mark Hall, your host. And it's Curtis Hall, the co-host. The Hunter Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by the community-minded Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, B.C. The weather's changing. We were just talking about snows flying here pretty quick. We had a little bit of a little bit of a dusting up uh, up where I am last night. So if you're looking for a new set of winter tires or all season tires, give the folks down at Alpine Toyota a call. We love that they're huge supporters of Ducks Unlimited Canada, Ducks Unlimited Canada. Sorry, and uh, they're a huge supporter of what we're doing here at the Hunter Conservationist. So when you support their business, you're supporting them, supporting conservation efforts, which is pretty cool. So big thanks to Alpine for being the Hunter Conservationist title sponsor for our podcast here. This specific episode is sponsored by the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance. They are a North American wide science-based conservation organization. Their mission is to increase and enhance the management range and populations of Rocky Mountain goats across both native and suitable non-native North American habitats without negatively impacting native ungulates while educating the public of ongoing conservation projects and petitioning for the expansion of sustainable hunting opportunities across the continent. That's a pretty good mission. It's a big mission, but they're doing a pretty good job with that. If you head over to goatalliance.org, there's lots of cool stuff you can go through. They've got uh, all their different projects. You can see past, present projects. Um, and the most important thing is if you're going on a goat hunt, they have a identification video for you. Whether you can tell if it's a billy or a nanny, 
So if you're going out on a goat hunt, make sure you check that. Make sure you take the right goat that they want you to be taking, which is the billies. So check that out. Uh, join the Goat Alliance or even just donate if you like what they're doing. Uh, that All that can be found at uh, goatalliance.org. So thanks to both of those groups of folks for supporting us and bringing you this episode. Absolutely. So I think since the last episode, I went out, I have a goat permit, a goat draw this year for a small zone in the, in the Rockies, um, really tough area to find, to find goats in, not, not like a big population of them, but, uh, we went out, spent three days, found a billy next day in a basin next day. He just like up and over the mountains and took off. And then for the next several days, while we were waiting for goats to come back into the basin, there was a grizzly bear living up in the rocks where the goats were like, and it was like, he's, oh, there it is there. And it's like, and then it goes down and then a little while later, oh, it's over here and it's over there. And it's like, pretty soon it was like, you know, the whole, if a goat comes into that basin, the whole route up to getting to where you could get to a place where it's like, that's where the goat has to be in order to take it. The bear was living there. So we're like, you know what? It's probably why the goat buggered off over the mountain range. So we're like, oh, we're going to have to cut this short and came out a day early and then went duck hunting the next day. But, um, you probably won't see that in the, uh, nanny Billy guide, but, uh, they're up there. Goats and grizzly bears living on the same ledges in the Rocky mountains. It was nuts. <laughs> um, so we're joined by Neil, uh, Kewen. Neil's the chair of the Alberta chapter of the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, an expert sandhill crane hunter. Welcome, Neil. Thanks for having me. Awesome. That's a great story, man. I'm just like, that's so cool. Where do you shoot them? Like, is it like a neck and head shot thing or? Yeah, uh, apparently you just gotta lead them. It's no different than uh, Canada's. Um, okay. And it was interesting because I had uh, walked out there with, uh, BB, um, a BB, a couple of BB loads, and uh, the guide said uh, you can actually utilize, uh, say, number three uh, or even number two, because again, because you're shooting for the uh, uh, the neck head area, and uh, he had identified that typically BBs are actually too big, uh, and it doesn't have as much penetration, which I kind of found hard to believe until I began uh, seeing what uh, was happening to the, you know, the sand hills. Like, yeah, okay, maybe I'll start switching down. <laughs> Oh yeah, it also becomes a game of numbers too. Like BB, there's not a whole lot in there, right? So, and you got this big, tall, skinny neck that you're shooting at. It's like, huh? Now we could do a whole episode on sandhill crane hunting, but uh, uh, so tell us about BHA in Alberta. How's how's things going? What's what's your membership doing? How? Give us a snapshot of BHA Alberta. Sure. Uh, so we got formed in uh, 2017, uh, so we were the second Canadian chapter, and uh, we actually uh, got into things right away. Uh, There's a number of uh, issues that we had to essentially start uh, making our voices uh, heard on, um, and more, and basically have stayed pretty consistent uh, throughout the, uh, the years. Uh, we're not shy, essentially, on uh, speaking up and uh, trying to represent our uh, members as best as we can with uh, both the government as well as uh, other stakeholders. Uh, the two major issues that we tackled uh, this year uh, was the coal mining in the Rockies. Uh, that was a bit of a surprise <laughs> for a number of everyone. 
Um, for everybody so in the whole province? <laughs> pretty much, yeah. So that uh, it definitely yeah, provoked a reaction. And uh, I guess the really puzzling thing from our perspective is that we were the only hunting and angling group that actually uh, said or did anything for the longest time. Uh, just before the uh, coal policy was uh, uh, rescission was uh, called back or recalled uh, by the uh, government back in January of uh, this year, uh, there was only one other hunting organization actually did uh, write a letter to the, uh, the government saying that uh, they were just uh, they weren't too happy with things either. But to actually even to this date, uh, Alberta BHA is still the only hunting organization that's taken uh, an active stand. Uh, we also ended up getting involved in a court um, or specifically a judicial review, uh, which is basically asking the courts to kind of take a look at how things were done. And we had partnered up with uh, the ranchers as well as a couple other organizations. Again, we were the only hunting and angling organization that went that length where we ended up having to uh, retain counsel and actually send counsel down uh, to court to um, basically uh, represent us. So that was an so adventure. Give- Give folks here just a bit of a rundown on that whole coal issue in in the Rockies in Alberta. So there was a like that was the low heat administration back in the seventies. Did a public consultation thing and then drew a big circle around an area of the Rockies and said there will be no coal mining here. And then and then what happened? Yeah, actually, I'll take it a step back. Uh, so the reason why the Lougheed government had underwent that review is that it was actually kicked off by hunting and ang- or hunters and anglers, uh, and I was in the late '60s. Uh, so it was oh, the, okay. well. which is I'll be honest, I had no idea until I began personally uh, digging into it. Um, so what had happened is the uh, hunting and orga- or angling organizations in the ex- existence at that time they were concerned about uh, the threat of uh, mining as well specifically in the south um, western alberta so they said hey look like look at all these other strip mines that are uh, occurring elsewhere in alberta uh this isn't cool essentially for lack of a better term they kicked up a fuss and they ended up uh, through some pretty consistent uh, advocating they uh, forced the Lougheed government to kind of sit down uh, listen to what was uh, being said by all these other stakeholders and it wasn't just hunters and anglers but uh, conservationist uh, groups at the time, uh, outdoor recreationists, everyone was actually quite upset about this. So they ended up uh, going through about two years worth of uh, hearings, essentially, or stakeholder engagement. And then at the uh, end of result of that, they ended up uh, putting out the coal policy, which was uh, the 76, 1976 coal policy, where essentially everyone essentially endorsed it. Uh, it wasn't quite as simple, unfortunately, as just drawing a circle around an area and saying, don't mind here. Uh, they broke it down into uh, separate categories which uh, I'll be honest, we'll go down into a rabbit hole on that. Uh, but essentially the government itself had uh, recognized that um, the Rockies held a, or still hold obviously, um, a position of essentially um, where Albertans really love it, right? Like we all wanna basically go out there and enjoy it for what it is um, and basically recreate there. That was the biggest thing. Uh, so things kind of went uh, obviously uh, quiet on that front for the next uh, 40 years or so until last year it was actually on a may long weekend where the government uh, literally put out a news release saying hey by the way we rescinded the uh, 76 coal policy that was it uh so that obviously did not go over well because uh, no none of the groups that were previously engaged with back in the 70s uh, had been contacted about this and uh, all of a sudden we find out that there's uh, coal exploration leases being assigned uh, in areas again that actually would directly impact uh, hunters and anglers if anyone spent any time in the Oldman uh, River watershed, uh, it's actually renowned uh, for the fly fishing there. 
uh, that entire area, for lack of a better term, is uh, slated for uh, mole, or not just coal exploration, but actually exploitation as well. So it was a little concerning because uh, all of a sudden all these exploration roads were being cut in. Uh, and obviously it's going to have a detrimental effect on elk as well as uh, any other the critters that they hang out there. Uh, of note, uh, exploration licenses were actually uh, issued um, with uh, minimal review on uh, the impact uh, that would have on uh, sheep as well as uh, goat uh, uh, seasons. Uh, so what that means is literally in the middle of their um, uh, their sensitive time for uh, taking care of the kids and whatnot. So it raised a lot of eyebrows, essentially how everything was uh, being rolled out. So that's why BHA got involved. It was well within our mandate, uh, but we did uh, we began getting a lot of feedback from our members asking, hey, like what's going on? What's BHA going to do about this? Which is uh, what essentially kicked us off onto things. Um, so through our efforts, um, specifically on social media, that was actually the biggest uh, driver of things, as well as um, essentially reaching out to uh, people that uh, necessarily are not hunters or anglers, just like kind of building those bridges across to other outdoor recreationists, such as the hikers, uh, any of the folks uh, who go out there for mountain bikes, uh, whitewater rafting, so on and so forth. Uh, we uh, initiated our call to action, which resulted in just over 3,000 uh, letters uh, to every single MLA, as well as the Premier, as well as uh, the Environment Minister, as well as the Energy Minister. So we were pretty popular for a while. And now it's in <laughs> conjunction with other um, uh, call to actions that are being put on by other organizations. So it basically, it had an effect because uh, now all of a sudden MLAs are getting these emails and phone calls uh, spurred on by our uh, call to action, as well as others saying, hey, like, this is something that really matters to Albertans. Uh, why are you guys uh, letting us go on? So um, we'll skip forward. I've already mentioned the court action, uh, but basically we began uh, seeing a, a huge amount of pressure being placed onto our elected officials. And uh, that resulted in a couple of uh, half-hearted attempts to kind of walk things back until uh, basically they buckled and said, you know what, we'll put the 76 set coal policy back into effect uh, pending stakeholder consultation which led to the formation of the uh, coal committee, uh, which was essentially um, given a mandate to basically talk to all the stakeholders as well as the Alberta public uh, about their feelings for mining, specifically in uh, the Rockies. So right now that committee is uh, wrapped up uh, its consultations. I think it, uh, they spent about uh, two to three months um, uh, doing the, uh, the hearings. Uh, we took part as well back in July or August. Uh, we put a submission in as well, basically saying, from the hunting and angling perspective, this this is how our members are being impacted. Because um, again, a lot of people don't really recognize that hunting uh, hunters and anglers do have a, a, I think, a pretty prominent place or a vested interest into how uh, wildlife habitat, especially in Rockies, are uh, uh, are impacted. So we made sure we got our um, submission into there, and the report is due. I want to say in about that four weeks or five weeks. So we'll see what happens after that. We'll see what the steps steps the uh, government takes. So. It's with bated oh, breath, really? but we'll see. But it's been it's been a journey. <laughs> wow. And and you know people people need to realize. I mean, hunters and stuff know <laughs> this is like a bunch of volunteers that are that are doing this right. Like it's this is just how dedicated um, you know hunters and anglers are. Uh, you know for this sort of thing, and a lot of other groups have got paid staff. You know, like the. Um, why do I, Yukon to Yellowstone? Like, I mean, they, they got on board. They were advocating, um, you know, for the reinstatement of the policy as well. But they got paid staff. And you, you guys you guys are volunteering. So uh, that's, 
that's a lot. That's that's huge. That speaks volumes for for you guys. Now there was the there was the coal mine uh, in the Crow's Nest past um, the Grassy Mountain project was was been in review for quite a few years it came across my plate a few years ago um six seven eight years ago or something like that and so it was kind of in in review uh i think the federal government stepped in and looked at it through the federal environmental assessment process probably because of you know the the advocacy that you guys were doing and then they ended up at the federal level um rejecting the project and saying they weren't going to issue an environmental assessment certificate for it which you need the environmental assessment certificate in order to carry on with the provincial level regulatory approvals you know for a mine so um yeah so that's one that already got take, taken off the books they have another project there the links project is is that part of the coal policy area or what do you know about that one uh are you talking about tent tent mountain well, there's Tent Mountain, and then Baringa had another mine project, I think, north of Grassy Mountain towards the Kananaskis called, um, it was like the Lynx Project or something, if I recall. Tent Mountain is the one that's right on the border of British Columbia. Yeah. Uh, so. so Grassy and Tents were actually a little bit uh, more unusual, primarily because Grassy, as you've identified, it's been in works for about seven years, and it's reactivating uh, a mine that's been there. Uh, that was actually shut down, I believe, in the '60s or '70s. I'm likely getting those dates wrong, so don't curse. No, I think it was it, it was like a hundred-year-old mine when when they first started there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So wow. they they have been trying to start that up, um, but it wasn't. Yeah. So, anyways, uh, tent also um, was a mine that, that got shut down, but it wasn't really shut down. Uh, they just essentially put um, what I would call to sleep, essentially, but. Care and maintenance, uh, yeah. Care and maintenance, essentially. And uh, all of a sudden they said, well, hey, by the way, uh, we never actually shut it down, so we don't have to go through the regulatory process. And again, um, I will give full credit to the public as well as the other organizations. They did an amazing job of raising public awareness on that. Um, and ultimately, uh, I don't want to say it was 100% um, them, because obviously there's some major issues with the app, uh, applications as well. Uh, but both grassy intent were denied, uh, which is great to see. Uh, but we're not out of the woods yet because uh, we still actually got seven, uh, I believe it's seven or eight projects that are still in exploration stage uh, that are essentially waiting for bated breath uh, with what happens with the 76 coal policy. Right. And then last year, the year before, you guys were involved in some advocacy work around the Bighorn Wilderness area. Maybe give a little high-level snapshot of what that one was about yeah it's been a while <laughs> actually since uh, we've talked about bighorn oh yeah the bighorn yeah um so yeah so the bighorn was essentially it was a proposal uh, put forward by the government at the time to protect uh, um, a fairly large area essentially um, uh, from essentially development and ironically if uh, they had their way uh, we wouldn't be talking about coal mines uh, in that area but unfortunately uh, as you're well aware bighorn uh, got uh, uh, shut down by the uh, newly elected uh, government. I believe that was actually one of the first things they did. Uh, they basically scrapped that entire proposal. And next thing you know, we have a couple of uh, coal mines uh, being popped into that area. So so the original proposal was for a, like a wilderness area designation or something, wasn't it? Not like a park, but a, 
Yeah, so it was interesting because essentially what it would have done is it would have actually uh, painted a pretty cohesive uh, picture and protected that area from developments, um, as well as making sure it wasn't quite shut down as a wilderness area. Because uh, if you look at uh, some of the other wilderness areas that are within Alberta, we're not allowed to actually hunt or camp there or fish. Like there's simply, you're not allowed, you're like you can walk in there, that's it. Uh, you can't uh, basically do what uh, we tend to enjoy, which is the hunting and uh, angling aspect. Um, there was also no plans to convert to a park, which would have came into a uh, provincial park, which would have had its own strings attached as well. Um, so the way the government approached it, I think, was uh, a good way. They did actually have a lot of engagement with the uh, key stakeholders. But unfortunately, um, it was just, for lack of a better term, uh, it was poorly executed in terms of rollouts. And um, ultimately what happened is the uh, government obviously got uh, voted out, and then we had the uh, new uh, government come in and basically say, you know what, uh, this is not what we uh, actually envisioned. Uh, we're going to carry out the appropriate uh, land planning process and we'll let things uh, roll where they may. And now flash forward two and a half years and nothing's actually progressed on that uh, plan. So it's unfortunate, but what do you Jeez. do? <laughs> yeah. Um, then you've got the whole chronic wasting disease pandemic yeah. going on yeah. in Alberta. Yeah, that um, was uh, that was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's crazy in some some zones. I think Matt Basco on one of the podcasts was telling us like incident rates in some of the zones in Mule Deer Bucks or whatever was was it like fifty or seventy percent probability or something that a, a buck would have CWD. Now all of these last year, all these new um, positive cases were popping up sort of towards Coleman, Blairmore area and stuff, and they're getting really close to to BC. And, of course, if you know your geography, there's the Crow's Nest Pass, which is this sweet little connective corridor through the Rocky Mountains from the foothills of Alberta into the Elk Valley of BC. So people are now fearing that that's going to be a, a movement corridor for, for deer and stuff, bringing... Uh, CWD to BC, so they're watching that. But it's man, that's that's a tough one. How um, how are hunters reacting to that? Uh, they're actually, I think they're more aware of essentially uh, at what's at stake right now. And we saw that uh, with the uh, feedback that we got on our social media about two weeks ago when the uh, high fencing uh, proposal was. Uh, announced or the lobbying efforts uh, was announced. Uh, people are aware that CWD is not good. Um, and I think it's really starting to hit home primarily because uh, when people are being told that they have to uh, submit their head for uh, mandatory testing, that says, hey, like it's coming uh, and it's going to have a huge impact. Uh, so Hunter, I know, like, again, I can only speak for our, uh, our stakeholders or essentially our membership, but uh, people have spent a lot of time in southern Alberta and they're starting to see CWD positive uh, results roll in and they're like, well, what do we do? Like, do we take the chance? Do we eat the, the deer? Uh, do we just basically acknowledge that's here and not do anything? So I think things are, uh, they've been pretty vocal uh, with the odd, or sorry, with the uh, government, uh, which is why you saw a bit of a change this year. So they, government is taking a little bit more aggressive approach. Uh, they're definitely expanding the, uh, uh, the surveillance aspect, where which is where the mandatory head submission is coming in and testing. 
Um, but I think it's going to come down to uh, give it a couple more years and we're going to need like something serious to happen. So um, BC uh, will likely have to start raising its voice as well and saying like expressing like very loud concerns because the last thing we want to do is see chronic wasting disease in um, our elk, moose or deer populations, especially when we're talking about over the border. Uh, and you're absolutely yeah, correct. Absolutely. You're absolutely correct. Like they have been following the other watersheds because that's just how things go. So. Well, it's a, yeah, easy, easy movement corridor. Uh, you know, I think the, uh, anybody that is listening that has ever traveled through the crow's nest uh, from Alberta to BC or vice versa through, through there, um, it's pretty cool there, the, the, lands, the landscape, the foothills on the Alberta side, the grassy slopes, you can see all of the terrace lines in them from the era of the bison. Like they're still etched into the into the hillsides, and um, I know from working with archaeologists that those bison were going right through into the Elk Valley and out into the Rocky Mountain Trench in southern BC and stuff, and they find them in archaeological sites and and stuff. So it's a moving corridor. It's been there since the glaciers left and stuff. So some deer have already or are, are going to move move into BC from there. So it's um, yeah, that's that's a tough one. Um, you guys got invasive wild pigs, not as bad as Saskatchewan, but you got those too. I just had a conference call today with uh, Dr. Ryan Brook from University of Saskatchewan, Canada's pig man there. And, and uh, of course, there was a news story just came out recently about them showing up in, um, uh, in one of Canada's first national parks. Invasive wild pigs have arrived. You guys got those. Jeez crazy man we got our problems yep yeah yep and uh i hope that the conversation with uh, dr brooke uh, went well he uh we had a webinar with him earlier this year and it was fantastic uh he's an amazing guy yeah he knows his shit about pigs <laughs> but <laughs> um but he's so frustrated because governments from national to provincial level are not doing anything about it. They're spending more time trying to deny his science, especially in Saskatchewan. It's just like, I, he's throwing his hands up and saying, well, he has. When we had him on the show way back when we first started, he was kind of like optimistic that Canada could handle on it. Now he's just like, nope, it's fucked. Yeah. It's, the window's gone. So <laughs> that's... That's Ryan. So, but but you got you got some pigs happening in Alberta, and now everybody in Alberta is on board with high fenced elk hunts. What the hell is going on with that? So I would say everyone in Alberta is on board. With that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, isn't isn't that like a proposal of BHA? It's just like, hey, why don't we just put them in a fence? No. I, I know you're, you guys are ripping and shredding, but um, yeah, what? where did this come from? So from the beginning. Honestly, uh, we were notified by the Alberta Fish and Game Association uh, that um, there was rumors that the Elk Commission was actually lobbying for essentially exactly this, uh, to permit uh, game farms uh, to basically convert to high fence hunting. So what's um, the Elk Commission? They're, unfortunately, they're the commission that represents all the elk farms that we have in Alberta. Oh, okay. 
Uh, so back in the, again, I want to say it was uh, late 90s, early 2000s, uh, back in the Ralph Klein days, uh, game farms were still permitted and actually they expanded quite a bit because apparently the market back then for uh, both the elk meat as well as the uh, elk antlers was pretty high. And then all of a sudden uh, the markets uh, blew out and then all of a sudden there's all these elk farms that are uh, basically shutting down left, right and center. Uh, so some of those elk farms actually let their elks run around. To, uh, cut, they cut them loose uh, into the wild, which yeah. had its own obviously impacts. Well, um, you had uh, there were some high fence wild boar operations up around White Court, um, and Dr. Ryan Brooks had basically cross Canada like wild pig invasive wild pig populations in the wild are correlated very strongly with those those high fence hunt operations. So. Um, now they want to do it with elk. Yeah, the, so the elk commission is, uh, they're just essentially trying to, um, and like, uh, you, you have to give them kudos, like they are representing um, uh, their stakeholders as well. Uh, so they're looking for a way to uh, get some extra revenue and they're saying, hey, like uh, we ship all these elk across the border uh, for exactly that, for high fence operations. Why can't we do it here in Alberta? Um, but what they've done is they've actually been lobbying the uh, municipalities uh, directly uh, to get this done in conjunction with the Alberta Agriculture Minister um, to basically permit this, which is unfortunate uh, because when things like this uh, pop out, that uh, things have been happening behind the scenes without, again, stakeholders being uh, engaged or consulted, uh, it turns into a bit of a fiasco, which is exactly what happened. So Alberta Fish and Game, they raised the uh, warning flags. Uh, They've essentially, um, they've been kind of carrying the flag on this one for a couple months. And then uh, there was an article that came out, uh, it was a couple of weeks ago, uh, put out by the Canadian press, uh, basically saying, yeah, here's actually, here's lobbyist records that proving that the Elk Commission has been lobbying our government directly uh, to get this stuff going, as well as the municipalities. A number of municipalities have actually provided uh, documentation saying that, yes, uh, we've actually received uh, documentation from the Elk Commission saying that uh, we're looking for permission to uh, legalize essentially high fencing uh, under the guise, obviously, that yeah, everyone's gonna uh, make a million or a couple dollars off this. It'll increase revenue, and everything everything will be magic and unicorn uh, and rainbows afterwards, <laughs> which we all know probably not going to happen. <laughs> so, are there operations already in Alberta that are raising elk commercially behind? High fence operations. Okay. So but, then they are no allowed. Hunting. Okay. But not, not hunting. So they're, they're just like the suppliers of, of elk, um, to high fence hop hunt operations in the U S is that there's high fence hunt operations in Saskatchewan and Manitoba, I believe, right. For elk and whitetails. Yeah. Um, so now they want to open it up and allow allow hunting uh, in Alberta. So what so what changes? Like why is this now different? Um, or what's the issues with with it being hunting? Like the elk are already there. Honestly, it's no different than going out and shooting a cow. Um, and I'm not sure how many hunters would uh, take a lot of joy in that or find that uh, there's any element of fair chase to it. I personally do not uh, covet, or I do not look forward to the time where I can not basically walk out and shoot a cow or shoot an elk. Like like a like a moo moo cow, not a cow elk. <laughs> yeah, lots well. of people are going. Hey, I got a cow elk. I got a permit. Tasted just fine. 
What's that guy talking about? Sure enough. Uh, but honestly, it really comes down to fair chase. Um, and obviously, yeah, some jurisdictions, they embrace high fencing. Good for them. Uh, that's not something Alberta, uh, actually specifically Alberta, has uh, embraced uh, primarily because when it was first proposed back in the 90s with uh, Ralph Klein days, uh, Ralph Klein himself actually said, no, we're not going to accept this. And if anyone knows anything about Ralph Klein, he's a, he's a, a true or through and through um, conservative. Um, and he was pretty set in his opinions. Uh, but the interesting thing is he said, no, like uh, this is not hunting. It's not fair chase and it's not going to happen. And he actually shut down that proposal back in uh, the day. And then all of a sudden flash forward a couple, uh, two decades later, and it's the latest and greatest way to earn additional revenue. That's something, uh, yes, uh, we're not going to deny that I'm sure it's going to bring uh, additional revenue. But again, it really comes down to the fair chase aspect. And is it really hunting? Like if I can go out and shoot, again, I'm going to point out if I can shoot an elk or I can shoot a deer, but it's basically trapped in this little fenced area. That's That just doesn't do it for me. And I'm pretty sure uh, if you ask the public at large, if that's what they would consider hunting as well, keeping in mind that... Uh, Hunters are always having to justify their social license to go out and hunt critters. This does not help in any stretch of the imagination. Like, it really does not. Yeah, yeah. So there's not really a, a wildlife health concern with the proposal? Like, obviously, like, you know, wildlife and fenced operations like cervids, uh, that's how CWD got started. It was a... It was came out of a fenced facility. It was first, well, it was first described at a facility in Colorado, I believe, in a mule deer. I think in the fifties, fifty six or something like that, and then an elk from a high fence farm operation in one of the Dakotas was moved to Saskatchewan to another fenced operation there, and that's the epicenter of CWD in Canada. And then Saskatchewan got it, and and it's headed headed west so these fenced operations right now must be screening and following standards for cw testing for for the elk yeah uh, they are claiming to to go through that and I, we have no doubt uh, that they are doing testing but it's we have to keep in mind it's not just cwd it's that discussion here it's any essentially wildlife diseases uh, you're concentrating on a large number of uh, animals into an area that's not natural to them. Um, and they do, it is actually proven that they do have interactions with uh, uh, wild animals that are on the other side of the fence. And that's actually how uh, the diseases get uh, transmitted quite easily. So, yeah, that's an issue with sheep, uh, wild sheep and domestic sheep. Correct. Um, I believe it was just a couple of years ago that they discovered that the um, disease that domestic sheep carry that's lethal to wild sheep can be sneezed, I think up to, if I'm right, up to like 90 meters Holy out of a fenced sheep farm. So they don't actually have to walk up and kiss each other on each side of the fence. One can, the, the domestic sheep can really literally like spew some snot outside the fence and the wild sheep that are going by outside can get it and then they go in and have to cull the whole wild sheep herd so um probably same mechanisms you know with elk um, they don't actually have to touch each other but spitting and peeing and sneezing and stuff outside the mm -hmm. <laughs> now t 
TBs that already, uh, bovine tuberculosis is already an issue in elk in Alberta, isn't it? Um, that one I'm not, I'll be honest, I'm not as certain about. I know they've detected okay. a couple of cases of it, uh, but as far as I know, it really hasn't caused many issues. Okay. Um, and prior to this, I actually did ask one of our board members uh, who actually did his, uh, he's going to shoot me, but he did something really awesome about it in post-secondary. Did believe, an awesome uh, thing. Your colleague did an awesome thing. Yeah. Um, anyways, the gentleman, uh, he actually did, I want to say it's his master's on uh, chronic wasting disease. Uh, so Tom, if you're listening to this, sorry, if it wasn't your master's. <laughs> but uh, anyways, uh, so he is uh, what I would call our uh, chronic wasting disease expert on the board. And um, when I asked him about TB, he didn't really uh, know much, uh, too much about it. So obviously he hasn't really flagged an issue there. Okay. Yeah, no, that's, that's fair enough. I, I, I'm not super familiar with it other than just sort of like gleaning it um, that it was introduced into the wild elk in Alberta from cattle. And then the incidence rates started to get high in cattle. They cleaned it up, or sorry, in the elk, they, they cleaned it up in the cattle. And then there was this big kind of movement to call and reduce the elk herds because they can transfer it back mm. to the cattle. And I think that was, that was going on like decades and decades ago oh, and okay. in, in Alberta and kind of the whole thing, well, the ranchers hate the elk and you know, that, that sort of thing. And it's like, you know, then the hunters were like, well, it's your cows that gave them the TB in the first place. So, um, <laughs> I guess that that's maybe a little lingering thing that could, you know, be part of the issue here with, with the high fenced hunt operations, but, so you guys are really uh, coming at it from really coming at it from the ethical aspect of hunting and how that um, is going to impact what Alberta stands for, for, for the hunting culture. Yeah. Uh, we always have to think about social license. Like I can point to some recent examples in terms of bears uh, where we have a couple of bad actors and just things go sideways with the public. Sticking spears and bears and putting it on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, that's you. Or poaching grizzlies or... Uh, actually, yeah, let's not talk about grizzlies. I know you guys are that sensitive on that. Uh, but it really comes no, down to... you guys to... got a recovered population. Now we're getting there. Uh, theoretically, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it's, it's social license, uh, the ethics, and uh, the fact that, and I'm literally going to read this because I wrote it down before I, uh, I joined us. Um, but wildlife is really a public trust, right? And uh, we're, we are abiding to the North American model of wildlife management. And nowhere uh, does it say that pay-to-shoot operations uh, are cool. Like, why would you do that? Like, it's just, it, it's just crazy. It also sets a value to the, uh, the wildlife that we're shooting. So all of a sudden, if we've got a farmer saying, well, Hey, if uh, these guys can do it, why can't I? And it just, it perpetuates this really nasty cycle. And again, we can point to a number of jurisdictions in the U.S. as well as uh, uh, Canadian provinces where this is happening now. Is it really that great for uh, hunters? Like when people uh, think of hunters, is that the, uh, the image that we want to give them where we're creeping into this farmer's field that's uh, got fences around it and getting these really awesome racks off of a deer or an elk? Like it's just... Uh, Sorry, but the, the very thought of it just makes my skin crawl. So. <laughs> so can't we do the thing where, where we like, I've, I've never considered it hunting. Like it, it's, it's a person paying to shoot livestock. 
whether it's an elk or a cow or a goat or domestic sheep or whatever, it's like whatever. Um, I, I very much reject it being labeled as hunting. Um, it's annoying as all frickin' hell to see these guys posting, gals posting pictures, uh, and they're in camo, and they're posing with these things. Like, they're posing as hunters, and it's like, no, you're just, you're paying to shoot a, a livestock, right? For an extra, for an extra hundred bucks, it's like, you can shoot my dog, because it's like, it pooped on the carpet, and I'm mad at it, like, you know. Um, so can't, can it just be marginalized? Like just sort of like, you know, stop calling it hunting. Like you're a bunch of posers and, you know, and marginalize it as just a, you know, pay to kill livestock type operation. And do you, th do you think that's possible or would society not allow it to be separated from regular hunting? I don't think society uh, has that nuance, and I hate that painting us as difference. Uh, but we obviously, as hunters and anglers, we're always pretty sensitive uh, to how the public per, uh, perceives us. Like, why would we basically just continue to add insult to injury? Like, it just to me, it makes mm -hmm. no sense. Um, and again, I I understand where you're coming from, but to me, it's one of those slippery slopes. Like, why not just say, you know what, we're not going to uh, tolerate it. Uh, we didn't tolerate back in the mid nineties. Why would we tolerate it now under, again, we can say all we want. That's going to be financially uh, positive. You know what? I'm pretty sure there's other ways we can get, uh, uh, additional revenues into these municipalities. In fact, I know we can, cause there's a report that actually just got released, uh, I want to say about eight weeks ago, uh, by, uh, the tourism association where they invited BHA as well as a couple of other, uh, outdoor recreation associations to join in. And uh, they polled our members uh, members to see basically how much money was being spent and pumped into the economy. We have proof positive that hunters bring a lot to the table in terms of contributing to the economy. Why do we, uh, would we endanger that? Not to mention that now all of a sudden we're going to start introducing additional uh, disease factors. Like it makes zero sense. Like I just, <laughs> again, it makes my skin crawl thinking about it. Um, and I will point out that uh, we're actually uh, collaborating with the Alberta Fish and Game Association. Uh, we're actually just on the verge of uh, launching our call to action tool where people can basically send their thoughts directly to the uh, their elected officials on this. We see it as pretty critical. Like, I think if hunters and anglers just kind of step back and say, you know what, let's, uh, let's uh, let things happen. I don't think it's the right way to do it. Um, and as we've demonstrated pretty clearly with the last couple of uh, calls to actions that we've done, the government actually feels the heat. Uh, the last thing that uh, uh, an MLA uh, would want to hear is from some angry hunter saying, why are you letting this stuff go on? Like, again, we know it has an impact uh, from a disease point of view. We saw what happened with COVID. <laughs> Do we really want that to happen again? Like, <laughs> let's kind of draw the parallels here, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, for sure. Um, is there, is there any, do you have any sense of what the size of these operations are? Uh, no, primarily because I, from what I understand, it's still, uh, in the planning stages, but it's no stretch okay. of the imagination. The second they're legalized, uh, we're going to start seeing them everywhere. Cause people probably like traveled around the country and stuff. And you see these high fenced elk farming operations, the ones that raise them for meat and antlers and, and velvet and uh, breeding stock and that, that sort of thing. A few of the big bulls get separated and pulled out and sent, sold to like uh, high fence hunt operations, like all over, like we we're talking about. 
Um, but, but they're, they're fairly small. Like, I mean, you see like two or 300 head and they're like, there's the fenced area. Like they're, they're contained. They get fed, you know, a couple times a day, they got water and stuff. So it's like, would, you know, people be visualizing, well, that's where these high fence hunt operations, or are they talking about like, well, this is going to be like a million acre ranch and, and somewhere out in like the foothills, like there's the elk are out there and you got to go find it. Uh, and you've only got three days to get out there and find this bull that we know is living out there somewhere like it. That, that, that's kind of why I'm wondering what, uh, uh, you know, how, how that might work. So Africa is very different and a tremendous amount of Africa and those hunting concessions are actually high fenced. Yeah. But we're uh, also talking private, about private concessions, yeah. but they are, they're, they're millions and millions of, of acres large. Like, I mean, yeah. the whole idea of like, well, you're hunting and it goes to the edge of the fence and like it, it's like, it's almost the way it's been described. It's like, it's kind of irrelevant because it's like the fence is like, on the other side of the horizon over there. That's how big this landscape is. And you might hunt a whole week in here and actually never, 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 you know, see these animals that they know are in there somewhere. And then I had also heard it described to me that some of the concessions in Africa like are so big, they're, they're gridded. And so you will, are authorized to hunt in certain grids. And if your animals leave those grids within the fenced operation and go into the other, you can't, they won't let you go hunt there. Hmm. And so then the whole notion of like, well, high fenced hunting operation is like, you know, these confined little things. Like it was, you know, the, 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 the paradigm was sort of being challenged, but I mean, that I, I think it's almost impossible to compare Africa to Southern Alberta because have you ever seen that map where they take the continent of Africa and it's like North America and Australia and China and part of Europe and all of that actually fit within the continent of Africa. Like it's like, that's, it's pretty mind blowing. But so basically like they're probably going to be on the small enough scale that if they know there's like a, 450 bull in there somewhere that you're going to run around and find it somewhere during the day. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, like I would, I would get, I grant you that, like we're talking apples to oranges here. Like I don't Absolutely. think anyone will envision uh, any sorts of ranch that size, but again, where does it stop? Like, are they going to open up, uh, do the same thing with deer? Like, and that's what we're concerned about is you crack open that door, you legalize it. Heaven knows where we're going to be in a couple of years. So again, you could get an, you could get, you could buy the elk ostrich combo hunt. <laughs> Throwing a couple of sand hills. <laughs> yeah. Huh? That's, yeah, that's, that's a whole, whole, whole new economy. Yeah. I mean, I totally, I mean, I totally get it. It's, uh, you know, I, I do honestly believe there's no way to marginalize it and just call it a, uh, um, you know, an agriculture kill up, you know, kill operation or whatever, because the owner's market, it is hunting. The people that are going there call themselves hunters. They call it hunting and they dress like hunting. And it's one of the issues we have, I think in North America right now is everybody dresses the same. We're all Photoshop clones of each other. 
And so if one person wearing Brand X camo is a dickhead, then the public goes, oh, there's a bunch more of them dickheads right over there at the convenience store. And there's two more over there getting coffee. It's like, it's like we got team uniforms and, and yeah. you know, if you are a Canadians fan and you hate the flyers, you can tell everybody this got a flyers Jersey on. Right. So, and they, they wear all of that stuff in these high fence operations and they take their grip and grin pictures and they put it on social media and everybody's like, well, bullshit, that's a high fence hunt right so it's it you can't separate it. it it'll get used against you no doubt so i'd be curious like what would uh your impression uh of this say similar proposal being done in bc well it couldn't get off the ground because decades ago british columbia um prohibited game ranching of native servants so there were as I recall, there were two exceptions, and one was a caribou ranch and a couple of fallow deer operations that have apparently gone by the wayside. Uh, the caribou ranch, I think, still has car caribou on it, um, but they're under legislation strictly from a wildlife health issue, not a fair chase hunting or hunting image thing. British Columbia said no. Hmm. And I think it's been one of the things that's held CWD out of the province is that we're one of the few few provinces in Canada that have said no to high fence servid operations from the get go. So they've already got a foot hit foot in the door, so to speak, politically because they can farm the elk in Alberta, which you can't even do here in BC. So okay, yeah, and. Yeah, there's not much uh, more we can talk about it like in terms like obviously there's a disease aspect it just anyways there's just so many things wrong with it um and i will say i was actually pretty gratified to see that uh, it wasn't just hunters that were upset about this it's actually the uh, general public as well it created a bit of a stir on uh, our facebook groups as well as our instagram page um and basically one of the more frequent questions that came back is what can we do to stop this like hey we know an association that can do that for you so <laughs> <laughs> Which is why we're um, we collaborated with uh, our head office to set up a call to action, and uh, like I said, we'll be implementing that within the next uh, few days. Sweet. Oh, cool. Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll definitely help help you push that out. So, um, is it something this is going to be specific to um, Alberta residents to go on and sign on as a voice to 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 government, or can kind of anybody do it? Yeah, uh, so anyone who actually uh, puts in their address, it'll show uh, where it's coming from, so anyone can do it. Um, and honestly, I really think that uh, anyone who represents hunter or considers themselves a hunter um, should basically uh, make their uh, voice heard on this one because it does have mm -hmm. an impact. Like, um, as we talked about earlier, CWDs on your threshold, it's going to come in. The last thing uh, I think Alberta wants to be known for is uh, sending uh, CWD over to BC or even Montana. Like, it's just, yeah. honestly, it's not cool. Like, why would we even no, talk about that? <laughs> we, we, know, we know where it came from. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, so, no, this, this is interesting that the non-hunting public has, that it's, it's got onto their radar screen as well. So what are you, what are you seeing? What's the pulse kind of of that vibe? Is this like a, um, oh yeah, that's hunting 
uh, it's all hunting should be banned. That's even worse. Cause they're, they're going to like put them in cages, caged hunts or whatever, or, or are, is the non-hunting public really separating like, Hey, we're okay with what you guys do out, out there. But, but this whole idea of fenced hunting, we see that as an unethical issue or is, yeah, they find it repulsive. backfire on you and be like a whole attack on hunting. Yeah, um, and I, I, that's exactly it. I believe the general public sees as repulsive, and they're also making the uh, they're drawing the parallels to uh, again COVID, because um, obviously with CWD it's much more visual. Like once you get a, a deer that's uh, clearly suffering, not having a good day, they recognize that this is not cool. It's not great. Like it's not a great image. Period. Yeah. Um, and just it would go back to it. Like people recognize that uh, hunters, as we would define them, who are willing to put the work in. Uh, to basically harvest their animals. Like, again, you got to put some sweat e equity into things, not drive up in your Can-Am, jump out and uh, take a shot. Like, to me, that's just, again, people can uh, differentiate that. And that's where I think BHA has done a pretty good job in, uh, in our image as well, because when you see uh, the grip and grins that uh, members would take or uh, folks who uh, subscribe to the hunting ethic that we all uh, uh, fancy ourselves as uh, chasing as um, we're going to walk up and down all these uh, awesome river valleys or these mountain ridges looking for our quarry. We get our quarry and it's, uh, we come back with uh, full backpacks. That looks, that looks good because people know that we've uh, put the effort in a little bit different when you're uh, coming back with shopping bags, <laughs> a couple of antlers sticking out of it. So, so, so what about the ones in Alberta where they get it in the farm field and then the tractor goes out there and picks it up and brings it back to the Quonset hut? Well, you know what, honestly, uh, we do recognize everyone's got different abilities and, um, it's, I think it's actually the entry point for a number of folks. Cause uh, they start saying, well, holy crap, you mean you can actually hike in a couple of kilometers or you can put mm -hmm. on, uh, dozens of kilometers going up and down these uh, mountains to find these exact same critters. And guess what? They look even more awesome uh, when you're up there, probably because you're oxygen yeah. deprived. But <laughs> um, yeah, like we don't judge anyone now. Like if you're going to put the work in, it is what it is. Uh, but I think there's a pretty big barrier when you start talking about putting a fence in between your critter. And, yeah, I mean, yeah. there's a difference between a 48-inch high bar bar fence that everything hops over and gone on to the next section that you're not allowed to hunt on, right? Like versus... You know, if you paid 20 grand and they've been feeding growth hormones to the bull and they've been taking pictures of it every week and mailing it to the client that's paid for, you know, or whatever, it's like, you know, you're going to kill that animal. You are not coming out of that, that cage match, you know, with, without it sort of thing. And, um, I don't, do you see any of those pictures on social media, like of those whitetail operations yeah and i'll God. i'll be honest it's disturbing <laughs> like again you got to think what's wrong with that deer <laughs> and then you realize exactly but, that so the, there's a tremendous amount of the comments on there are just like sick but what's sick is like probably 50 percent of the comments are like holy shit wow what a bruiser um <laughs> great wow uh where can i get info hey you know, don't knock it. If you saw that buck, don't tell me you would pass it up or whatever. And maybe outside. I saw fence, one the other but... day. That... <laughs> yeah, yeah. If if it escaped, that I don't know. They're just so ugly. It's like you could tell that the thing is a freak from one of those freak farms. And it's like if it was wandering around on public land down in the states, it's like. 
I'd be like, well, whatever. Yeah. Um, I saw one the other day that the, the buck antlers were so big. It was a video that was taken at nighttime. Like its head was cocked over and hanging like, cause it, these antlers were probably, they look like those, um, those Irish stags, you know, like the things, it was like a four foot wide span and it was like so heavy. It, it, its head was cocked over and stuff. And it was just like, yeah, it's, it's repulsive and make no bones about it. If these high fence operations in Alberta get into it, the bigger that they can grow those things, the more grotesque, the more, you know, non-typical bull scores 600 points or whatever you know they're going to get more money for it because there's people out there that will will pay for that they got those same thing in new zealand with the red stags and um you know kind of thing and it's like it it'll turn into a circus like there's no doubt about it well i uh <clears throat> i know a guy i'll keep him nameless because i spend a lot of time uh at work with him but uh he doesn't listen to the show so he's he probably won't hear this, but... Uh, Big high fence hunter, is he? Well, so he's not, but when I first met him, we were in a shop and we were just talking some stuff and he has a great big massive set of elk antlers on the wall. And he has this really cool wooden skull that's all carved out and, and whatnot, like resembling a European mount. And he's going off and he's telling the story of the hunt and this and that and whatnot and everyone else at work's like, Oh my god! Like that's like, that's crazy. That's super cool. Like wow, this is insane. And I'm I'm sitting there looking at them, and I'm like, those are fucking sheds. <laughs> <laughs> and so I called them out. I was like, those are sheds, man. Those <laughs> you didn't shoot that thing. First of all, they're bleach white. There's not a lick of brown on them. And I'm like, just look at you can see underneath the wood around the the burrs i'm like those are sheds and he goes yeah okay well i guess uh, he goes my, my my buddy shot it at a at a ranch somewhere over there and uh i was over there and i just loved how big the bull was and so the the owner of the property said well i can sell you his sheds from last year and he's like done deal <laughs> like, really smokes. <laughs> that's mental <laughs> I don't know what to say. <laughs> Wouldn't, you know how, depending on how the seasons are, like the growing seasons and wet and the forage is not good. Like, I mean, uh, an animal can regress a little bit in his, in his antler size. Like if it's a poor, poor growth year and then, you know, next year's really good that they don't incrementally always, always get bigger. Wouldn't you be pissed if you paid like 30 grand, but then you bought the sheds for like 1200 bucks and that they, they were bigger than the, yeah. <laughs> than the shot the bull. Oh, yeah. Is it the, I was just going to say like, see how ridiculous this conversation gets about this stuff, but this is real stuff going on out there. And this is what you guys are, are faced with in Alberta and that you're, you're standing up for the good name of hunting to try to try to keep this out of your province. Yeah, and just uh, we're trying to basically paint the picture that, like, look, um, where's the story behind a high fence hunt? <laughs> like, am I going to really be writing home to my buddies or talking to my buddies over at beers saying, yeah, like this high fence hunt was the greatest because I knew exactly what I was going to go get? Uh, we had him down before coffee at nine o'clock. Like, that's ridiculous. Like, took I'd rather side, talk to the side by side out there. And... 
maybe the challenge is you pay for the hunt and then you go to the gate and it's got a combo lock on it <laughs> and then there's you're given a bunch of clues and you've got to decipher that to figure out oh the first number's a one and then you got to go through all these things and if you can't get the gate open you're not going to get your animal that's the story no, that's plausible yes <laughs> not something i'd sign up for but sure <laughs> uh yeah i mean that's uh yeah, it, it, it's, it's definitely, uh, you know, things, things can get weird, weird, pretty quick, uh, you know, with, with high fence hunt, hunt operations for sure. So, um, I think it's, it's amazing. You guys are, you know, standing up for it. I think one of the issues that the hunting community is divided over is this whole thing of, uh, Hey, it's legal. So all hunters stand together and defend it. Even all this sick, sick, perverted stuff that people put on there. It's like, well, it's legal. Who are you to say, you know, and, and that sort of thing. And I personally don't agree with that because there are things that are more nuanced and nebulous that, yeah, they're legal, but you shouldn't be, you know, displaying an animal that way on social media or whatever. And, and I, I really feel this is what, what you guys are doing in Alberta with BHA is you're going, it would be a legal form of hunting if it was, if it was passed, but it's like, we're not just going to blindly stand behind everything and know, know what that's going to do to, to everybody's hunting image. So you're, you're taking a stand against, you know, something that's could potentially be legal. So, um, yeah, are you getting any backlash? Actually, surprisingly enough, uh, there hasn't been a peep. I think people are more in shock that um, we're actually collaborating with Alberta Fish and Game, uh, primarily because for whatever reason, people don't understand that uh, different groups can stand for, or advocate or stand for different things. And uh, we've always been painted with that brush, but then all of a sudden, like when uh, we're saying, no, like Alberta Fish and Game has got a right. Um, and people are like, well, what are you talking about? It's like, well, no, like they've got it right. Like you have to give them kudos. Like, again, there's no reason, uh, just, and I'll poorly, uh, quote someone else. Why should all hunters be in the same boat? Like when you have a couple of hunters that are shooting holes in the bottom of that boat, and that's kind of what the situation would be. And, um, the biggest thing that I've noticed is there's been very little pushback from anyone on this one. So, which is good. Um, primarily because that means that we're likely on the right path and why not do the right thing? Like that's, I think it's literally one of those things where everyone is kind of unified that, yeah, this is just not a good thing for Alberta. So why would we want to tolerate this point? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, no, for sure. Well, that, that's good. I know with the wild pig issue, um, like I was saying earlier, these operations start, they buy the wild boars, they, they start running these high fence operations. Then when things don't work out, they literally are just opening up and letting these things go. They're not even bothering to cull them or, you know, whatever, just give them away for people to put, put in their freezer or whatever. And then hence we've got this, this invasive wild pig problem. So it seems like the history of these exotic animal hunt type things uh whether they are exotics like you know maybe that's the next thing these things these alberta hunt farm operations want to bring in owadads and you know an ibex and all this kind of stuff and 
be Texas, Texas of the North or whatever. Um, it's, it's like, it's like anything in commodities. It's like, it's great when the prices are up, but then when they fall, it's just like you instantly cut your losses. And when they're living animals, um, like that's the easiest thing for, you know, for a rancher to do. It's, we saw where we used to live, um, uh, by the lake. It was like the koi fish in the pond, oh, man. the rich people with their summer cottages. They're just like, well, it's fall. It's going to be winter. It's like, well, we're going to lock the cabin up. And it's like, pfft, they just dumped them into the lake. And now there's like these 40 pound koi fish swimming around. That's competing with the now native bass and perch that <laughs> yeah, it's not a single but native anyways thing it's like lake. it's it it's a huge reality of uh of um these things is is the inherent risks of people just punting them punting them out and and uh the bottom falls out of it and you know way way they go and now it's a, now it's a bigger problem. So. Yeah, what there was a cheetah that was ripping around and monkeys on Vancouver Island, like yeah, we've had a loose monkey in British Columbia a couple winters ago. We had a cheetah. Um, <laughs> well, that was piranhas. that was the cheetah was right before the uh, the twenty seventeen provincial election. Yeah, that was a cheetah. Nice. <laughs> At about this time of the year, too. Snapping turtles on the so, island. There was that one at that one lake by Nanaimo had friggin' red bellied piranhas, piranhas in it. In it. Like. Yep. So there you go. Get yeah. your elk and your ostrich combo. <laughs> finish out your hunt, catch a few piranhas in the Actually I think you just gave some to... folks in Texas a bright idea. <laughs> welcome, welcome, welcome to Alberta, folks. No. <laughs> Not if you guys have anything to do with it. Um, cool. I mean, thanks for the rundown on that. Um, this is a, is a super topical issue. Um, it's great to hear uh, what BHA is doing, what your position is on this, what the background, what the real story uh, is. Uh, you're, you know, you're standing up for uh, the image of free range hunting, um, basically wild and natural. So. Um, Good, good luck with that. Uh, folks are following along um, on your social media. You're probably going to see when this release comes out of this um, site, form, whatever it's going to be, where you can go on and voice voice your opinion to support um, keeping high fence hunting out of these game farm operations. So uh, we'll, we'll do some stuff to, to help you get that out when it comes to, and we'll get on and sign it as well. What's some cool stuff you got on the go with BHA in Alberta? What's what's some what's some fun stuff? What's your membership doing? How are you getting new members? You hosted a, a webinar last night. What was that on? Uh, the webinar last night uh, was actually our second one this week. Uh, we talked about knives, um, so I think that's actually a pretty overlooked uh, topic for a number of uh, those who are new to hunting as well as fishing. Uh, mm -hmm. So that was really awesome. We teamed up with uh, Kent of Englewood, uh, which is. Uh, sister company of uh, Knifeware, uh, and I believe there's a couple shops out in Vancouver. Uh, great folks, they definitely know they're uh, sharp, shiny objects, and it's a treat to have them uh, uh, collaborate with us on webinars. Uh, this is actually the second time they were with us. Uh, they did a webinar last year with us uh, on how to sharpen your knives, and uh, we were just uh, talking today. Uh, we might uh, put another uh, webinar together on axes and how to sharpen those. Uh, so anyways, can't give enough uh, props to those guys. Um, 
it's, da- cool. it's dangerous every every time I go into their store, put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the other webinar... Never have, that, you never have too many knives. Right? <laughs> uh, the other webinar was actually uh, with uh, Mark Stenros from iHunter on uh, Tuesday night, and uh, we just talked about uh, iHunter. Uh, it's gone through a major facelift, and he was happy to, uh, again, walk us uh, through what's changed and how to be more efficient at utilizing it. Um, I think it's an awesome tool. I personally Amazing. spend way too much time playing with it, to be honest. Uh, but I use it for not just hunting. I use it for uh, hunting, fishing, um, camping, and a bunch of other uh, stuff that I do. Uh, just a fantastic tool. Uh, I can't uh, sing its praises enough. So I think it's the easiest uh, $20 or best $20 any hunter or angler uh, can spend easily. So. To get the iHunter app and yeah. uh land subscription for alberta yeah absolutely um, absolutely but yeah to answer your question um yeah uh, since the pandemic um hit us uh, quite hard uh, earlier last year we pivoted to webinars uh, instead of our pint nights and i, I want to say that last night's webinar i think that was our 18th or 19th webinar uh over the past 18 months which is great uh and we're actually just planning another one all about ice fishing so we're trying to get these really uh, narrow topics, just talk, uh, get some uh, subject matter experts and talk uh, about them for about 20 minutes, open up to Q&A. And uh, I'm actually surprised at the number of uh, people that uh, basically text us later, or email us later saying, hey, we went and tried all this stuff. It's great. Thanks for putting this stuff on. So uh, we've, cool. a- we've actually increased our uh, recruitment, uh, believe it or not. Um, I, we just got the numbers from um, North American uh, BHA. Uh, Alberta was in the top five, I think, for um, membership improvement or uh, recruitment rates oh, uh, over wow. the past 18 months. Uh, so we understand. Oh, that wow, pretty congrats. Tough, yeah, it's fa- I'll be honest, it's fantastic. And it's uh, a testament to basically how many, uh, how passionate our volunteers are to basically uh, put these things on and um, adapt on the fly, essentially. So. That being said, we're not all about webinars. Uh, we've uh, been doing a fair amount of uh, remediation projects as well, or public line cleanups. Uh, we're doing our part to uh, basically put our money um, where our mouth is in terms of uh, getting boots on the ground uh, and basically improving uh, wildlife habitat and uh, public lands as a whole. So the majority of us, I'm not sure if you saw the BHA survey that came out a couple of weeks ago, but uh, it's surprising uh, how high the percentage is of the number uh, of folks that rely on hunting just for their diet perspective and uh, even how much uh, time we spend out in public lands. So if you, you got to use it or you lose it, that's our motto. No, absolutely. Well, that's great. Is, is a large amount of your membership in Alberta coming out of the urban centers? Like, do you, do you see that, that same trend of like, um, the adult onset hunter, the first time generation type type hunters, and uh, actually, surprisingly enough, the demographics are skewing quite young. Uh, so we're right now we're seeing the bulk of our membership, uh, the age percentage. I want to say it's between twenty to age forty, uh, and a lot of it is actually new to hunters, which is fantastic, or new to hunting, new to angling. Um, and believe it or not, it's actually pretty evenly spread, uh, both from urban as well as rural. So. The message is definitely resonating out there that there's a different organization that uh, is willing to, again, uh, stand up for uh, certain things that some um, some folks in the hunting scene would uh, would not uh, appreciate. Like, obviously, they keep going back to it. We're all on the same team type deal. Um, and that proof is in the pudding. Like, we've uh, consistently increased our membership by year over year by uh, 15 to 20%. So, obviously, we're doing something right. 
No, totally, yeah. totally. I mean, it's a great, uh, great province to be in. Um, I believe Alberta and BC, um, this kind of got promoted. It was only happening in Alberta, but it was actually happening in British Columbia as well, are the only two jurisdictions in all of North America that we're seeing an upward trend in the number of new hunters buying licenses in all of North America. There are more licensed hunters in Alberta than in British Columbia. Um, like I think there's, remember there's like 30,000-ish more resident hunters or licensed hunters in Alberta than BC. But um, the two trends were almost the, the exactly like the same. Um, big steep kind of like um, growth and like then a little bit of a dip and then a big a big uh, uh, spike again, which interestingly was correlated to the downturn in the oil sands business and because there's so many people that lived in BC that worked in in the oil sands in northern Alberta. And uh, so when the downturn happened there and there was a lot of layoffs and unemployment, people just went, great, we got free time to go hunting. Um, and so there was this huge, huge spike in, in hunting licenses. But, but that, I remember that particularly the Alberta case uh, was being showcased all across North America. And people are, because they're freaking in the United States, right? Of like some states are like, are like they're losing hunters like on an hourly basis down there kind of thing. And Alberta is just doing the absolute opposite to the North American trend. So it's got to be a great place to live. It's got to have great game. It's got to have good wildlife management um, and some great organizations like BHA that are that are bringing people together and addressing the issues. So, yeah, and uh, I think props uh, should be given to to uh, in this case that'll be the Alberta Conservation Association. Uh, they made a very pointed effort to make sure that uh, the opportunities were there. Uh, they kicked off the Tabor Pheasant Festival uh, a number of years ago, and that's been uh, going like crazy for them. Uh, it's a great way to introduce that people uh, to upland hunting as well as actually hunting in general. Um, and uh, actually, just recently, Alberta uh, BHA was actually per, uh, allowed to join as a member group. Uh, we were voted in uh, in August, so we are actually now part of ACA. Uh, and what that means is we can actually team up with them on our education initiatives, so such as webinars, or getting people out to actually do backcountry hunting, do backcountry angling. Because mm -hmm. right now, um, that's what we've seen and we've gotten feedback from is people don't know where to go. Like they want to do it, but they don't know how to do. Um, they don't know who to go approach from a mentorship perspective. Um, and just basically making that known that hey, like we actually like a good chunk of our members, we spend a silly amount of time in the backcountry. It's not that big of a deal to kind of tag along and uh, get or, uh, shown the ropes on how to approach stuff like that. Um, and that's where I think ACA has done a brilliant job in the past uh, decade or so, kind of laying that infrastructure and getting in these different uh, groups to represent uh, certain um, uh, percentages of the hunting scene uh, and basically saying, hey, like, uh, what ideas do you have to start uh, increasing uh, hunting and uh, angling engagement? Um, and actually, I don't, I'd be remiss to not mention, like, uh, ACA also has the Kids Can Catch program, uh, where basically they'll give, uh, uh, they get their sponsors to buy uh, fishing rods, and uh, they'll host these, it's literally fishing seminars for kids, and uh, the kids, the best part is the kids actually to get to take home their fishing rods. You never know what's going to happen. Um, so I think it's a brilliant way to do it, to be honest. So. Cool. 
So the Alberta Conservation Association is partially funded through dollars from hunting licenses and tags in Alberta. Yeah, yeah that's correct. Yeah. Uh, so they're, yeah, yeah. they get the, those funds uh, from uh, the hunting as well as fishing tags. And they uh, basically, um, they're obviously their main mandate is for conservation projects, but part of that is actually education programs as well. Yeah. Uh, I love the Alberta Conservation Association because they have a very visual representation of the importance of hunting and angling in Alberta. They do not hide it. They are not shy about it. And they're very clear that they're spending money that is targeting things that benefit hunters and anglers. And, you know, uh, here in British Columbia, our tag surcharges, conservation surcharges go to the Habitat Conservation Trust Foundation. And when you go look at them, they, they look like just like an ENGO. Like there's, there's no pictures of like blaze orange and hunters and working with research and stuff. Like it's very, um, you know, they, they fund projects, you know, big game projects and stuff, but on the face, like looking at the cover of the book, um, they're very butterflies and toads and, you know, kind of, kind of that sort of thing. And, um, I really respect, um, Alberta Conservation Association in, in standing up for saying, this is where our money's coming from. And we're, we're proud to show that we're not going to hide it. So, um, very cool yeah that you're involved with them now so actually i think there's a, a lot to be said about that but yeah i think it's a, a it was a great move on there and uh, to do that because i would actually extend that you look at a couple of other uh, organizations that are out there and um even though they are funded purely by hunters uh, they don't really talk about that like they really kind of put stuff on the down low and i don't think that's a good way to basically um establish yourself in the sector or again, establish yourself as a mm -hmm. by hunters for hunters organization. So. No, absolutely. Neil, great conversation. Um, thank you so much for filling us in on all things in Alberta. Some, Some things in Alberta, let's put it that way. <laughs> there's, there's, we got, we got hours more, more of things we could talk about Alberta, but, um, yeah, it, I, I'm really thankful you kind of on short notice got on and kind of talked about what this uh, high fence hunt operation thing was all about. I think it's important for people across Canada to hear about it um, and know that um, BHA is right in the throes of, of uh, leading the charge on this thing and that uh, people from across the country, if this is something you believe in, uh, within a few days of hearing this podcast, that you'll be able to go on and support this initiative and help protect the heritage and image of hunting in Canada. Appreciate me. Uh, you have me on. Thank you. Oh, oh absolutely. We'll have you on again when the next crazy rodeo and public land and hunting is going on in Alberta. So just wait a couple uh, months. I'm sure I don't know. I don't know if you guys are getting, getting it worse, uh, than any other provinces, uh, or territories in Canada, but, it's i think you're carrying uh a lot of the burden for sure life's never dull around here <laughs> <laughs> awesome. uh, right on man thanks neil curtis take it away the hunter conservationist podcast is brought to you by alpine toyota in cranbrook bc like i said at the beginning we're super excited that they are our new title sponsor for the show
community-minded and conservation-minded. Two great things to see out of a local business. Like we've said, huge supporter of Ducks Unlimited Canada, which is another great Canadian organization along with BHA. So thanks to Alpine Toyota. If you're looking for anything truck-related, tires, maybe a new truck, who knows, go uh, go check out the folks at Alpine Toyota. I, uh, I believe they're the... They're the largest dealer, or they sell the most amount of Tacomas in Canada. Yeah, they got a they got an award yeah. for that. Yep. So, yep, uh, Toyota Recognition yeah. Award. So I think that was just uh, before the pandemic thing uh, hit as well. But uh, yeah, they are known for um, Toyota pickup trucks and lifting them up and putting tires Your on new them, and rig. catching the eyes of hunters and anglers. Yeah. Yeah, they're great folks down there. We uh, appreciate everything they do, especially towards the hunting and conservation areas. And this episode is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance. Another great organization doing some great stuff for conservation, and you know they're very science-based as well. Uh, go check them out, goatalliance.org. If you haven't seen the projects they're working on, they have a list you can go read up on that watch some cool stuff and if you're going goat hunting it's primo goat season right now there should be all furred out right before the big snows hit so if you're going out goat hunting make sure you check out the goat sex id video on their website uh, so yeah thank you to alpine toyota and the rocky mountain goat alliance Yep. Thanks to both those. And again, Neil, yeah. thanks. Um, if you're in Alberta and you're listening to this and you're not a member of BHA Alberta chapter, uh, just go on to the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers and website uh, and you will find the link to Alberta and purchase a membership. Comes with a free high fence elk phone. Join a webinar. <laughs> yep. <laughs> And uh, pretty soon you'll be going out with everybody to pint nights in Alberta. So um, support what they're doing. Membership and numbers uh, are huge. Um, Neil's job and his committees and boards is to take that membership and amplify your voice on behalf of public lands in Alberta. And they're doing an amazing job. So support them. Neil, thanks yeah, again. Thanks. Have a good night. And uh, hey, everybody, we'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>